0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Per Capita's webinar series. This is uh, our last for the year, and I'm thrilled uh, that we're being joined today by Alan Kohler to discuss his new uh, essay uh, in the quarterly essay-, essay series, The Great Divide, Australia's Housing Mess and How to Fix It. The how is something we really uh, like here at Per Capita, so it's good to see that. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm on the lands today of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present um, always was and always will be Aboriginal land, uh, land being very much the subject of our conversation today. Um, and I really, if you have not taken advantage of the special offer we uh, brought to you with our friends at Black Inc, please please do so. But if you have read the essay, you'll know uh, that Alan takes a long view of the history of housing in our country, uh, of, of our attitude towards it, and about why we are now... Uh, a less egalitarian country because of what's happened to housing. Uh, So let me introduce Alan. Alan uh, will be known to all of you, I'm sure, as the finance presenter on the ABC News, and he writes currently for the New Daily and Intelligent Investor. He's a former editor of The Age and the Australian Financial Review, and he founded Eureka Report and Business Spectator. He's written for The Australian, AFR, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. His books include It's Your Money and this latest essay in the quarterly essay series. Alan, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: The a pleasure, Emma. It's good to be here.
0: I'll just remind everybody that we are recording this. It'll be available on our website later. If you'd like to put a question to Alan at the end, uh, please post that in the Q&A and I will keep an eye on that and we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Also uh, here visible on your screen is Matt lloyd cape my colleague at Per Capita, who's the Director of our Centre for Equitable Housing and the research he's been doing this year uh, Uh, aligns very neatly with a lot of uh, the arguments that Alan has set out in this really well-written essay. What made you want to write this, Alan?
1: Well, the simple answer is that they asked me to. (laughs) They they contacted me and said, would you like to write a quarterly essay on housing? And I thought about it for a few days and thought, yeah, that would be a good idea, I'd like to do that, and um, uh, set about doing it. Well,
0: they, um, they couldn't have chosen someone better, I think, if, if, as I said, it's not only very readable, coming from a journalist, but uh, takes a long view of Australia's attitude to housing, attitude to land and property, really. Um, why did you start right back where you did? You, you looked at uh, the settlement of our country, the invasion of our country, um, and some of those early exchanges of land. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Well, I just, uh, I mean, Australia is not a, not an old country. It's fairly young. You know, a couple hundred years old, and um, I think the uh, the founding of the country uh, with English settlement was re- recent enough to have influenced um our attitudes today. And I I kind of wanted to delve into the what I see as the paradox of Australia's attitude towards land, which is that there's tons of it, um, and we kind of uh, our cities have sprawled. With large blocks, single dwellings on each block, very un you know unusual kind of setup. Um, but at the same time, we have this attitude that housing is the way to create wealth, and that it's scarce enough for that to happen. And so, I just kind of thought that this was an interesting um, paradox, really, as to uh, 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 in in Australia's attitude to housing, and I wanted to investigate it. Um, so I I kind of read about, tried to understand the early days, um, and, you know, the, uh, I mean, everyone kind of knows that, um, you know, in the first sort of 50 years of Australian settlement, uh, land was just handed out to whoever the governors wanted to give it to, and or whoever actually went and set up a place and uh, started running sheep. So it, it was kind of, you know, uh, based on the idea that there was no one here before, and that, England England owned the um owned the place the whole the whole place and just started dishing it out um and then um I think the other big event apart you know after the settlement was the gold rush in the 1850s um uh, without I mean obviously what happened was the the population exploded uh, as everyone came here to find gold and then there was a baby boom in the 1860s which led to the fact that you know um a whole lot of uh, people became adults in the 1880s and started looking for a house to live in and so there was there was a boom in, in housing and actually it was uh, fairly scarce so the the price um the price of housing took off so and I, and I think you know and I know, I know I've, I've been reading a fair bit of the the newspapers at the time, and the attitude in the um, late 1880s was that the housing was the sure way to build wealth. And so we had, you know, within the course of 100 years, um, this idea that housing was free, or sorry, not housing, land was free, and then land was scarce and was the way to build wealth. Um, and, I, and I do think those two um, ideas have persisted, you know, within us. Uh, since then,
0: I agree, and uh, and we are now reaping the the long results. You also, I think, you open the essay um, with your own family history and and what you know, comparing your experience as as you self describe yourself as a boomer. I don't like these labels, but that's what they are. Um, but compared to your parents, and then looking at your children's generation, and it's a really um, a neat way, I think, of showing us just what's changed in a couple of generations. Um, I think you, your parents, can give us a little background there. They bought a, a block of land and built a house in in Melbourne.
1: Well, just before I do that, I'll just on background, what I wanted to try to do was to, um, and the reason I wanted to do the essay really was, was to, firstly to investigate what happened, what has actually happened to house prices, because I think in all the discussion about housing affordability is is it's all been a bit loose. In my view, it hasn't been precise about what exactly has happened to house prices, um, and then to investigate why it had happened. And then I thought that if I did that and um, uh, did those things, those two things thoroughly, then the solutions might, might actually present themselves. Um, so anyway, we'll get to that. So then I thought, okay, well let's look at what's gone on through my own family. And so my parents bought a uh, bought a block of land in 1951 with a war service loan. Dad built the house and, um, so look, and the thing is, I don't know what he paid, and I don't know what he was earning then. But I do know I was able to find out that the average uh, price in Australia of a of a house and land package in 1951, early 50s, was around about 1,250 pounds, and the average um, salary was around about 350 pounds a year. So it was three and a half times, and I, and I I think probably that's kind of where my my parents were at as well. And so that is to say house house prices in the early 50s were three and a half times average incomes. And when my wife and I bought our first house in 1980, we also paid around about three and a half times our income for the house. And that was at that time in the 80s um, also the average uh, multiple of of houses, house prices to incomes. Um And uh, I've got three kids. They've, in the last few years, all bought houses, got married. had kids themselves bought their first houses. And uh, I worked it out for all of them. And the answer was seven to eight times. They paid seven to eight times their income, household income for the house. And that was the, uh, that was the, that is the the average, the national average. And so uh, basically what's happened is that, um, house prices have doubled as a multiple of incomes. And, you know, that's a big deal. That and that's a household huge, incomes, yeah? That's right. That's, that is a huge change, um, huge change. It's actually a, a little bit, um, how can I put it, distorted by the fact that household incomes now include much more of both partners working, whereas, you know, when my parents uh, started out in 1951, it was only dad who worked. Um so the, the household income then was dad's salary, and you know the household income now is usually full time salary for one person, part time salary for the other, and so the, these these seven or eight times that I've worked out is based on um, average weekly earnings for uh, for one full time, and average weekly earnings for one three days a week, and it's and the and the median house price is seven or eight times that. Mm. Um, so look. You know, I, I mean, and and so the and the other thing I kind of wanted to find out was, you know, uh, was this change a gradual one over the past, um, you know, seventy five years, or was it, did, you know, did something change at a particular point in time? And it's quite clear that the time that it began to change was uh, the year two thousand. So we can get into that. Um, Let's get into that now as, you, uh, as you as <laughs> you as you wish.
0: Yes, well, I think that was one of the things that struck me immediately. I mean, it's on page three of the essay is that graph, which looks very much like one that we've produced at the Centre for Equitable Housing as well. Um, but just before we do, I, I really I want to emphasise that point to anyone here. It's if you think about the value of the home in return for the hours worked by that household, the the growth is even bigger because women are effectively going into the workforce over this period. Um, and all of that additional three days a week of paid labor uh, is going towards house prices. So um, it's it's really so. What did happen in the year two thousand?
1: I mean, we know well. Well, <laughs> up until up until the year two thousand, um, house prices and wages and GDP all increased at roughly the same percentage per year, uh, which was around about three percent, give or take. And then after the year 2000, house prices started rising at an average of six percent per annum, uh, which is what's led to um, the multiple now being seven to eight times uh, incomes versus three to three and a half times incomes. So the so the, there was a, a uh, there was a change in in 2000 at the rate at which house prices uh, increased per annum from three percent roughly to six percent per annum. So the question is what actually so so okay. I kind of thought, well, what happened in 2000? And there's only one thing that happened, which is in September 1999, the Howard government halved the capital gains tax um, by uh, changing the way that capital gains tax is calculated from um, uh, being inflation adjusted so that from 1985, when the capital gains tax was, was introduced, Uh, Basically, what happened was from that time, you added the capital gain to your income for tax purposes minus the impact of the consumer price index uh, for the years that you owned the asset. Um, And in September 1999, that that was uh, uh, chucked out and they brought in uh, instead a straight-out discount whereby you only paid tax on half of the capital gain. And the argument um, there were two two lots of arguments. One was that this would um, encourage investment um, in companies and productive uh, uh, in, in productive sort of endeavors. And secondly, it was kind of uh, the argument was that it was roughly the same as the inflation adjustment, you know, given the way inflation was at the time and the average time that people held the um, held the house. So um, the thing is that. <sighs> We weren't interested in investing in shares or anything else. Australians are interested in investing in housing, so that's what they did. And secondly, um, inflation was pretty high at that time and it fell. So it's no longer the case um, that a 50% discount on capital gains tax roughly equates to an inflation adjustment. Um, uh, That's not the case. Um, we can. Do, do you want to get into any of that in more detail? Yeah, I mean,
0: it really, it's really striking, um, and an argument that we've been making ourselves. So, um, seeing it set out so clearly here is gratifying because I remember it. You know, I remember Peter Costello standing up and announcing that change. Yes, I'm that old, folks, um, and saying that this would drive investment into our productive economy. But that's not what's happened. It's all gone into into land prices, effectively. Um, can you explain to our audience? How how the how that change to negative to uh, the capital gains tax interacts with our negative gearing regime? So how it encourages people effectively to take a prolonged loss on an investment in pursuit of that capital gain?
1: Yeah. So the negative gearing uh, situation in Australia has always it's always been the case that you got to um, deduct uh, any losses from an investment uh, against your other income. Uh, so you know in, in the case of a house if the mortgage repayments on the house are higher than the rent you're getting that's a loss and you get to deduct that um against your salary from your salary for for your tax return purposes and that was always the case but the thing is that um that really kind of was supercharged by or the the appeal of that tax deduction was supercharged by the discount on capital gains tax um and one of the graphs I've got in the the essay shows, uh, the amount of negative gearing deductions from data from the tax office, which exploded after 2000. I mean, it was not much. Were, people weren't using negative gearing too much before that um, uh, uh, because, you know, you've got to pay full capital gains tax and nobody really was that interested in that. And after 2000, when uh, capital gains tax was discounted by half, um, everyone jumped into it. So it, it became a huge... Um, huge thing, and now I, I mean the other thing I want to say about the capital gains tax discount is that it was also a huge psychological impact uh, because um, nobody really understands inflation or CPI and how it works I and mean, what is CPI. Nobody gets it, and so really um, there wasn't this kind of sense where people un- understood how it worked, but everyone understands a discount. You know, fifty percent off. Everyone gets that, so that was that was what made it so appealing. Everyone kind of got it suddenly, and um, uh, you know, and then the the data is quite clear that that's what happened. Yes,
0: it is, um, and disastrously so. But as you pointed out earlier, the conversation around housing in this country tends to be loose, tends to be driven by particular vested interests. Um, and so I think while we do want to acknowledge and, and foreground those demand-side levers, we're not in the business of saying it's all, it's all demand or it's all supply. Um, this is a wicked problem with multi multifactorial causes. So you do look at um, some of the planning, the history of the planning changes in the country, and uh, you go back to Chifley's attempt to take the ability to set prices and control rents um, through an a pretty resoundingly defeated referendum. Um, the supply issue is the one that's being pushed at the moment, that it's all about we don't have enough houses. Um, but as you said, we've got vast tracts of land. So what, what's what gone wrong there?
1: Oh, well, what went wrong was the 2019 election, really. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, so the ALP in 2016 went to the election with a with housing affordability policy, which was... Um, to reduce the discount on capital gains tax from 50 to 25% and to confine negative gearing to new houses only um and they did pretty well in 2016 it you know they got a swing of 3.1% to them they won 14 seats um and really they almost won um despite having that policy right or or because or possibly because of having that policy who knows Um, Then Bill Shorten, I think, got a bit cocky um, or not so much cocky, but he he wanted to make sure in 2019, three years later, he wanted to make sure they won. And so he he significantly increased their spending promises for the 2019 election and had to raise some more uh, money to pay for them. So he kept the affordable housing uh, policies, but he added... um, uh, a crackdown on dividend franking in 2019 and then lost badly. And the thing is that um, obviously he lost his job then and Anthony Albanese took over. And the thing is the ALP doesn't know why they lost in 2019. Was it dividend franking or was it negative gearing and capital gains tax? Uh, and because they don't know which one it was, they dropped everything. And so um, uh, as a result of that, um, uh, those uh, t- tax changes to to re- to remove the tax incentives for investing in housing um, have become kind of politically politically toxic, and nobody wants to do it. Uh, I mean, uh, certainly the coalition doesn't want to do it, and the ALP doesn't want to do it either now. And so, whenever anyone uh, officially in in Canberra talks about housing, all they want to talk about is the supply, because um, uh, doing anything really to reduce demand would be uh, problematic. You know, it it would be painful, uh, in a sense. I mean, the other the other issue um, that would reduce demand would be to reduce immigration, and um, the government doesn't want to do that because the businesses are screaming for uh, staff, and so you know they they want to want to keep that up. And also, the, the federal government gets the benefit uh, or kudos of immigration because it expands the economy it expands GDP and they are credited when the economy grows and you know the fact is that without population growth and immigration over the past 12 months to two years we would have been in recession you know and um that would have been bad uh, <laughs> having headlines saying recession so um the, the federal government does want to reduce immigration and they certainly don't want to reduce tax incentives uh, on housing. So really that's why everyone talks about uh, supply because it's easier and less of a political problem.
0: Yeah. Uh, wholeheartedly agree. Um, And I don't think uh, it's bizarre to me that they're still more afraid of a headline that says that aggregate GDP isn't growing as fast as it should be than a headline that says we can't house our young people um, and and children fleeing domestic violence. Um, But choices and priorities. But we don't do supply particularly well in Australia either. You you talk in your essay about decisions made after the Second World War, um, compared to the UK, where we see quite a high rate of social housing in their system through housing trusts and so on, um, because they effectively nationalised their urban planning system uh, following the war, but we didn't go down that
1: path. Well, we actually copied their um, zoning and, uh, zoning systems in the early 20th century. Um, uh, and when they changed, uh, to centralize it into, um, the federal, the central government, uh, we didn't follow suit. Um, so really, I mean, that was 1942. I think it was middle of the war. I mean, uh, there was a bit of a, you know, bit of a distraction going on, but, but still there's no excuse. And, uh, um, so it's only—I mean, I, 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 one of the one of the lines in the essay is that um, the federal government in Australia, the federal government is in charge of increasing demand for housing, and the states and councils are in charge of reducing supply of it, and that's kind of the way it works.
0: Um- talking about that period in our history you 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 one of the great things about this essay is that you just very gently break open a few myths about Australia's um, political history um and you talk about something that you know we feel really strongly is a big contribution to this problem which is the lack of social housing construction um and it's precipitous fall as a share of properties in the country Um, and even though and and that's one of Matt's favourite lines that um, that Menzies wanted to build a nation of little capitalists by creating more homeowners Um, and you argue that he shouldn't get the credit that he often does for having uh, built or for having created that uh, nation of homeowners and that actually by world standards we're really not that exceptional.
1: Oh that's right and um, I mean what Menzies what Wendy's did was was kind of two sided in the sense that he um, uh, he did promote home ownership, but it was a uh, it was f- for self interested reasons because he believed, uh, possibly with some uh, you know some justification, that renters voted Labour and homeowners voted Liberal, and so he wanted to make sure that uh, there were as many homeowners as possible. And so what he did was he uh, forced the states to start selling the public housing that had been built uh, after the war. Um, So following the war, uh, you know, when Ben Chifley was in charge, um, they created the Commonwealth Housing uh, Commission. Uh, They started off with Commonwealth State Housing Agreements where the Commonwealth was paying uh, for the states to build public housing. There was a huge amount of public housing built uh, during that time and it did continue after Menzies uh, became prime minister in 1949, but not not for long. And he started to force the states to sell those that housing firstly to the tenants and then secondly to anybody who wanted them. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea simply was, as you said, to create what he thought was a, a nation of little capitalists. Um, so, you know, uh, the idea of public housing, uh, government-owned housing, government-built housing that is re- Rented at favourable terms to you know people who need it um, started to go away and I was I think finally killed off by Malcolm Fraser, but the, but the other thing that I think is kind of important in terms of what Menzies did was he um, embedded this idea that home ownership is good and renting is bad, and so and it be, you know he kind of in many speeches talked about how um, it should be. The great Australian aspiration to have a little plot of your own and you know that nobody can kick you out of, and all this stuff. And so, I think, um, during that period, um, Australia really became, um, a very, um, you know, wedded to uh owning our uh, owning your home rather than renting, you know, for long term, possibly for your life as people do in Europe. And, um, and I think that it has. You know, in a sense, been a bit of a problem because you know the 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 um the, the idea of ownership is is difficult for everybody. Yes. Anyway,
0: and of course, we don't have the kind of rental market partly because of the volatility of that sort of hobby landlord class. Anyone with a bit of extra money goes and sticks it in, or or equity in their own home, borrows, invests in an investment property, takes a loss for seven years, sells it. Makes a capital gain that doesn't create the conditions for a long-term stable rental market for people that might want to rent for their lives.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, look, I spent a bit of time, a few pages in the in the book talking about uh, pets yes. and how difficult it is to own a pet when you're a renter. And, and you know, Australia, pet ownership in Australia is really high. I everyone mean, loves pets. Everyone wants a dog or a cat. Um, but you know, there's, there's not many houses that you can rent that allow it. Um, which has kind of made it, um, you know, uh, which has increased demand for ownership of housing.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, the I'm going to bring Matt in uh, soon because I do want to get onto the. Is you know, we we want to find solutions. Okay, it's a it's a wicked and enormous challenge. I think, and you're right. Uh, you've you've rightly pointed out the political barriers to getting things done, but. It's not too cynical of me to say I hope that if there's enough demand from the community, politicians will eventually find their way to do something uh, that's in their political interest. So um, I want to to get on to how we, and that's one of the reasons we set up the centre here, how we can change uh, that public conversation so that there is um, positive pressure to do something to address the housing market. Um, But before I I do that, I just wanted to invite Matt to jump in those of you who don't know Matt, he's the Director of the Centre for Equitable Housing here at Per Capita um, and has been doing research all year in this space. We, did we find, Matt, um, I just want you to, to talk a little bit about what we found in our Housing Monitor survey because we're talking about community sentiment um, and that that needs to shift before politicians will shift. Did we, Do you think we're seeing a shift away from some of these long-held views and did you want to discuss that with Alan?
2: There's certainly an appetite for more political reform in the community than I would have thought before doing the survey. So when we asked people about their concerns about the current housing system, we saw enormous levels of concern, particularly among younger younger voters, as you'd imagine. But at the margins, um, and maybe important margins, there were significant differences. So, for example, we asked. Um, swing voters, how they felt about housing and how important housing was for determining their vote at the next, next federal election, and 80% of Labour swing voters put housing as a as a top tier concern, and 90% of people swinging away from the Libs had it as a as a top tier concern. So there's clearly, um, you know, the, the math, the, the arithmetic still isn't there for enough renters and and aspirational homeowners to shift the dial yet. But even among those that um, own their home, there was a fairly major appetite for reform, particularly around public housing construction, um, increasing commonwealth rent assistance. Um, And even among investors, and and this is the thing with our investor class, is that our our property investors, we have um, the majority, 75% of them just own one investment property. And their, their thoughts on what should be happening in terms of rent stabilization policies, in terms of taxation like negative gearing reform uh, was much closer to the general population which was generally approving than your sort of professional landlords with five six seven um rental properties on their books so it, it did feel to us doing that piece of research that there's more of groundswell of support for change because people are seeing it with their kids and their grandkids they're seeing these issues developing and they either ring, ring fence themselves and say well I'll guard my you know, my slice of the housing market as tightly as possible and try and negatively gear as hard as possible. But I think at the same time, there's a whole bunch of people that are saying, well, we do accept that there is going to have to be some sort of reform.
1: I actually think that um, if the Labor Party had gone to the 2019 election without the dividend franking crackdown, they would have won. And this is with just the uh, the affordable housing a policy of um, confining negative gearing to new housing and halving the capital gains tax discount. If they'd gone to um, the 2019 election with just that, Bill Shorten would now be uh, prime minister, and yeah. Anthony Albanese would de- be dealing with NDIS, and there would, you know, and those policies would have been uh, uh, implemented.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I think
2: the, the scale of the cost that we're going to see in the, in the coming years from negative gearing and CGT may shift that public perception even more. We've we've been um, compiling all of the costs of negative gearing and CGT back as far as we can, and in the in the eighties um, and nineties, negative gearing costs from property investors cost around one and a half billion dollars a year in today's money, and in the years between the introduction of the CGT discount. And the GFC, the global financial crisis, that increased to eleven billion dollars. It's an incredible takeoff, and that's set to increase again as uh, as the effect of the interest rate rises comes through.
0: Thanks, yeah. and I agree, Alan. I think um, people understood the the home affordability tax policies in twenty nineteen. They'd had them explained to them for years, and there was broad support for restricting negative gearing to new builds. Um, but then they dropped the. Uh, capital, the uh, franking credits tax in the middle of that didn't explain it properly and everything went off the rails. Um, let's move on to, because you, you you talk about what the government has done, this current government, since it came in, um, Alan, and you point out that even though the most recent parliamentary report on housing affordability by uh, the former MP, Jason Falinski, had two tribes, very clearly two tribes, the supply side being the coalition, then government's view, and the demand side being the Labor Party in its dissenting report, that everything the government's come uh, done since it came to power, not long after that report dropped, has been about supply.
1: Well, yeah, it was because they lost in 2019, and you know, as I said before, they don't know why they lost, so that was the end of that. I mean, um, the what they have done, the government has done, is <clears throat> broadly pick up the the central recommendations of that report. Uh, on supply, which is to um, uh, pay bounties to the states um, to in, induce them to uh, release more uh, housing uh, lots of fifteen thousand dollars per lot. I mean, so that there was at first there was a, um, a Commonwealth-State Housing Accord, which was uh, last year, twenty twenty-two. Uh, in august where they all had a meeting and agreed to that they would um uh, try to get a million houses built over the subsequent 5 years and then this year that was increased to 1.2 million um through the application of these $15,000 bounties that would be paid capped at 3 billion dollars uh, which equals 200,000 houses over 5 years so that was the that was the idea i mean the thing is firstly uh if you add up the number of houses that were built in the five years leading up to the pandemic, it was a million, roughly. And so all they were promising to do or saying that they would be able to do was to get it back to what it was. And, um, you know, I I mean, I actually have been encouraged a bit by the um, response of the states to the 15000 bucks because they all seem to be uh, scrambling to get it. I mean, they're so desperate for money, uh, the states that, you know, They'll kind of do anything for it. So they are releasing a lot of uh, lots uh, for for to be built. The trouble is that state uh, politicians don't build houses. Developers and builders build them. And, and the trouble is at the moment the cost of building a house have gone through the roof. And um, uh, also builders are going broke like nine pins. I mean, I, I saw a thing this morning saying that 30% of builders now are operating with negative cash flow. I mean, crikey, uh, housing approvals are in decline at the same time as immigration is taking off. Um, so they can, you know, they can kind of whistle up uh, 1.2 million lots for all they like, but this doesn't mean that they're going to get houses built on them. Um, and
0: we we know that developers land bank and wait until the the conditions are more favourable. So yeah, it, it would seem to have landed in a. Uh, a policy with good intentions that's landed in a reality that's not going to result in very much. And I think your your general appraisal of the approach again, aligns with ours. Um, you, you talk about the the National Housing and Homelessness Plan uh, consultation was released recently. I think we, like a lot of housing academics around the country, were pretty disappointed with its scope. Um, and as you note uh, in your essay, it doesn't really look at demand side issues at all. But I think most critically, you make the point that it treats housing as a welfare issue rather than an economic one.
1: Well, and that's right, and it kind of is a welfare issue. And but the trouble is that the housing portfolio at a federal level sits within the social services department, and um, the the new plan that Julie Collins is uh, in charge of is basically being conducted by the social services department, um, and you know is therefore being treated as a welfare issue. And so it is that. But but I mean the the fundamental problem that we've been talking about of the doubling of house prices versus incomes. Um, is not a welfare. That is a that is an economic issue that affects the economy of Australia and affects the society generally, not just um, you know not just the lower socio-economic end of the society. So, I uh, you know uh, um, so look, I, I think that they've got the wrong end of the stick. It needs to be approached as an economic issue um, and dealt with in that way, while at the same time ensuring that those people who are homeless. I mean, look. I, um, I don't understand how come we don't see housing as an essential uh, service or essential good um, in the same way that we regard, uh, say, telecommunications as an essential. So that the, with telecommunications there is uh, uh, something called the universal service obligation that uh, is imposed on Telstra, and they have to provide telecommunications to everybody. It's part of the deal. And likewise, electricity and gas and you know, uh petrol and water, they're all essentials, right? And the AC gets involved in um regulating the price. Government gets involved in making sure that it's it's supplied. I mean, when when Optus well, this is I mean, as a as a separate thing, um, you know, Optus's network went down a couple of weeks ago and it was absolute disaster, right? I mean, there was catastrophe and headlines everywhere and the CEO had to quit and um, but apparently housing isn't an essential. Well, I reckon it is, right? We, and so, therefore, there shouldn't be any homeless people in this country. Right. I mean, how come we've got homeless people? It's just crazy. Anyway.
0: In a country as wealthy as ours, it's not just crazy, it's criminal, actually. it's Well,
1: well that's right. That's right. I mean, housing, surely, the uh, roof over your head is an essential an essential, and the government should should see as its responsibility to ensure that everyone's got a house or somewhere to live i
0: mean and yet we've we've willfully abrogated that responsibility i think it's been as you as you as you outline in your essay and i really do encourage everyone to read it um i've read it twice very easy read and really sets things out clearly and while australia's had its own unique challenges in its attitude to land a big part of this too has been the dominant economic frame of the last 50 years that says get shrink government as much as possible, let the market deliver. Um, And we've allowed that to go to extremes in the housing sector. And surely if there is ever a market that requires government intervention, um, it's providing shelter. So why, for example, you talk about the way that bank products are offered in the US, the, the Fannie Mae and the Freddie Mac banks that can service You know, low income households, as Matt's pointed out in a lot of his work, the average, you know, the the typical length of a fixed rate mortgage in America is up to 30 years. In in the UK, it's five to 10 years. And yet here, we can get a two year fixed rate mortgage at best. Um, The government is not only not offering other financial products to to fix that market failure, but they're not acting as a non market provider in the housing space either, which is what um, that that investment in social and public housing after the Second World War started to do. Yep. So it's really a call for government to step in.
1: <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, and and look, I, I do think that um, there are occasionally things that where uh, the, the, the government should do stuff that isn't necessarily popular. Yep. You know, it it shouldn't be a matter of. I mean, I think the work you're doing on trying to find out if there's a groundswell of support for you know affordable housing policies is fine. But sometimes the government has to do stuff where there isn't a groundswell, right? I mean, they just, like, here is a here is something that is not necessarily popular. Um, uh, well, I think it is, though. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, they think it's not. not, they so, think it's you know, not. But, but sometimes you've got to do things that, that are the right thing to do rather than the popular thing to do. And um, that's what I think is required here.
0: And I think we've lost that. We, people feel that we've lost that capacity through successive governments of all stripes um, at the federal level, certainly. It's interesting to me that there was a lot of surprise among certain parts of the political class when the Andrewsra government was returned so overwhelmingly last year in Victoria. If you ask people why, it's because love him or hate him, he was getting things done, right? And, and people actually reward you for doing things. They want governments to do things. That's why they're there. Um, but we've lost somehow... Uh, that ability in all our leaders to say, "Well, this is the right thing to do for the country," and then to explain why it's the right thing to do and and persuade people. Um, so, do you think there's pro- uh, pro- noting that? Yep, yeah, we we might try and persuade them that the views are changing in the community and it's not such a dangerous thing to do, um, but it will always be a scary thing to do because, as you point out, it, it requires talking about tax. Um, And we seem to have lost the ability to make the argument that people, that we should raise taxes to provide services. Um, Are you optimistic or pessimistic?
1: I'm pessimistic, but look, um, I think that um, perhaps we can get into solutions now. I mean, I I devote the last chapter to uh, solutions and kind of, uh, as I thought about it, I thought, well, actually, you know, too, too much of the discussion about solving Australia's housing affordability has focused on the actual specific answers rather than dealing with the the, the 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 big picture. And and I think that the problem fundamentally is there isn't yet a national consensus around the need to change it, um, or at least there's not an obvious one to the politicians in Canberra that there is a national consensus, whether there is or isn't. But I do think they need to firstly achieve that. And secondly, I think that there needs to be uh, um, an aim expressed. You know, um, uh, with our climate change policies, for example, we have a a target, um, 43% reduction in emissions by 2030, net zero by 2050, and these are written in legislation, right? So they they haven't just got the policy, they've actually written the target of the policy into legislation. And I do think that, um, uh, so the first step needs to be achieving a national consensus that there's a problem that needs to be fixed. Second step needs to be what's the aim of the policy? What are we trying to achieve? Um, and my suggestion would be, and I, and I, I, the whole essay in a way is framed around that doubling of house prices to income ratio, which is the, the sort of fundamental core of the problem. Um, so I think that the government should be starting to talk about that multiple, right? House prices have gone to seven or eight times Incomes—that's bad. We need to get it back to what it was, or get it back to something or other. I mean, if they if they can't get their head around getting it back to three to four times, uh, get it back to five. I don't know. I'm pick a number, but but I think it should be back to three to four times. I mean, was that that was that was that that for ages? This this last twenty three years is just an aberration. Uh, we need to restore house prices uh, to what they were in relation to incomes. That's my view. And so, okay then the government so let's just picture a government of the future saying okay everybody what we need to do is get the house price to income ratio back to 3 to 4 times how do you do that well um uh first either you've got to reduce house prices by half or you've got to keep house prices where they are so that incomes can catch up and obviously you don't want to reduce house prices by half because that would be catastrophic uh to the economy um uh, you know, when American house prices fell by 30% in 20, 2006, and six seven, there was a global recession and financial crisis. So we don't want that. Um, okay, so uh, we're going to try to ensure that house prices don't change for a long time. How long would it take for incomes to catch up? The answer is 18 years. Mm-hmm. So um, this is at the current rate of income growth. Okay, so um, there you go, everybody. What we need to do is try... To, this is the government. This is what the Prime Minister should be saying to everybody. What we need to do, everybody, is to try to ensure that house prices don't go up for 18 years. Now, when I tell that to my kids, that's what we need to do. If there's going to be a sensible policy, it would be to do that. Um, they're absolutely horrified at the idea. So ed, anyone who owns a house, not just you know people who just bought them, but anybody, which is you know, two-thirds of the country... Um, would uh, would not be in favour of that, mm. of, of house prices not going up anymore, right? I mean, that would be unpopular because everyone yeah. likes talking about housing affordability as being a problem and they want to do something about it. But, okay, do you want your house to not change in value for 18 years? And the answer is no, no, I don't want that at all. I want my house to go up.
0: Yes. Yep.
1: Um, and so everybody's in that boat. Well, um, then, okay, so that's where uh, political leadership comes in, right? So everyone, so you have to, that's going to be a really difficult sell for the politicians to do. They have to persuade people. So it's a, it's a, I think, the whole job of, um, of housing affordability is not particularly academic or research-based, it's persuasion-based. Yeah. You know, the people of Australia have to be persuaded that uh, this is a good idea to to try to ensure that house prices don't go up because if we if we got the uh, the average increase in house prices down from 6% per annum which it's been for the last two decades to 3% per annum or 3 to 4% per annum um then the current uh, state of housing unaffordability would be locked in right the, the house prices would stay at 7 to 8 times income and you know, I don't think we want that.
0: Well, we don't.
1: <laughs> I, I don't think the society wants it. I mean, individuals want it. This is the problem. I mean, I own a house. Uh, do I want to just not come up for 18 years? Well, yeah, you know, I'm a very. Uh,
0: <laughs> You're a very altruistic man. Altru-
1: altruistic person. But, but so I'd, I'd cop that, but a lot of people wouldn't. Of people wouldn't. Uh, so I think that the job is persuasion, really. That's the job. It and is. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, this is the thing. You see, we all talk about supply. Are we going to increase supply? We're we going to do this to zoning. We're going to do this to, we're going to do this to council applications. We're going to uh, have better trains, so we open up more land. We're going to change the tax system. But what we don't talk about is what are we trying to achieve
2: hmm,
1: with true. that? What's the aim? And the answer must be to ensure that house prices don't go up. That's right. For two next. decades, right? Well, that is a. Um, that is a tall order, I reckon, to get it everyone to agree order. to
0: that. It is a tall order, but as you say, um, when you look at the crisis and it and the way that it's affecting, unless you own your own home now, basically, and pretty much unless you got into the market more than five, ten years ago, it's, it's affecting your security, your ability to build a life. To even if you're a renter, you know, you can't guarantee you're going to have a, a lease for more than a year or two. How do you have children and put them into the local school with confidence? So Do you think that, and I'll come to some questions from the audience in a second, but my last question, do you think that the shift now that as people, A, start to build more wealth in superannuation, so for that class of people, housing isn't the only wealth uh, anymore, and B, start to see, well, I want my house to go up but I'm going to have to either sell it or use all my super to get my kids a house deposit, that that equation, that that wealth effect that our house gives us, that feeling of security of it going up all the time, people might start to see that in more context.
1: Yeah, maybe. I, I hope so. That, I think there's, a, there's something in that. Mm-hmm. I think everyone's got a fair bit of super now and um, I think that's changing. There's going to be starting to change attitudes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I hope so.
0: Well, I think your essay is a very great first step in the in the task of persuading people to think a little differently about the value of their home. Um, I will go to some questions from the audience because we could have kept going on this all day and we've only got about 10 minutes left. Richard McLaughlin asks, you talk about the change in capital gains tax discount for investment property, but what about the 100% capital gains tax discount on the principal residence, which allows endless flipping over investment in renovation and construction and capital gain totally tax free? The, the shibboleth of the family home, Alan.
1: Yeah, well, look, I, I mean, I, I think that's true. It's a problem. You know, it would be better if it was taxed a bit, but it's, you know, it's not going to be, so let's just move on. So, look, I, I mean, I think I think it's important in this discussion to not spend, not waste time talking about stuff that's not going to happen.
0: Couldn't agree more. It's our mantra at per capita. We want bold change but achievable change. Um James has an interesting question, don't have his surname, just says he notices you have capital on your bookshelf just over your right shoulder, like all people interested in our economy should have. Um, Was there any inspiration around Piketty's theories about returns to capital and concentration of wealth uh, when you wrote this quarterly essay piece?
1: Oh, I'm a a, a Thomas Piketty apostle. (laughs) I think he's great. So, yeah, I've I've got a lot of uh, inspiration out of... um, uh, out of his writing it's fantastic a lot a lot of writing I mean there's tons of books behind me that uh, have uh, have informed my views absolutely I think it was um it was
0: capital that uh, so struck the per capita board about a decade ago that they decided to reorient the the think tank towards specifically towards inequality which is when I came came in so All right there you go influence on our thinking as well um I yeah. read it a couple of times because I'm a nerd um. This is an interesting one from Bruce Dixon. Bruce, I'll do my best with this. I'm not sure I fully understand what you're getting at. Um, Alan, is one possible solution to bring down the average house price? Average household income ratio by looking at the same issue. Ah, okay. If we move tax deductibility from negative gearing to mortgage interest deductibility for first home buyers, would that reduce the ratio of house price? to income. So effectively saying, well, okay, we won't we won't allow you to negative ge- negatively gear anymore. We'll take the same value of those tax concessions and give first home buyers the right to um basically offset their mortgage payments, mortgage interest payments against their income.
1: Oh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, look, I'm I'm not in favor of any um schemes designed to assist people to buy housing including um Uh, first home buyer grants and including the latest scheme from the government, the help to buy scheme, uh, which involves the government coming in as a partner, a part owner of the house and allowing people to buy it with a 2% deposit. You know, I mean,
0: I think we're just, these (laughs) are
1: band-aids. I think these are band-aids. We need to deal with the fundamental uh, wound and heal the wound rather than, you know, trying to stick something over it.
0: And we've stuck so many band aids on this wound over the years that they've, and a lot of them become infected and make things worse, frankly. Like first home buyers' grants, they uh, they just push up the price of housing.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Hugh Belfridge, who is is um, one of the principals at the VNF Housing Enterprise Foundation that supports our work at Per Capita. So I should let him uh, his question through. Um, he says, Alan, supply that reduces scarcity and addresses our real housing needs would improve access to housing, including by putting downward pressure on price. It's unlikely that this will be delivered by the market, by developers and investors because of that impact on price. And there are also significant capacity constraints in the housing sector. In this context, what changes, incentives, role of government and other policy changes do we need to create true supply, supply that meets people's needs, including by institutional providers?
1: Well, so in the SA, I kind of came to the similar, uh, went through a similar thought process and thought about you know the the um, discussion about the need for an increase in uh, medium density housing in the suburbs, and, and you know, a lot of the discussion about um, uh, extra supply, either from the government or anybody else, is to do with well located housing. So there's no point in having it not not well located. So the trouble is that I'm 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 pessimistic about the um, ability of either the market or the government, in fact, to come up with enough medium density housing in the suburbs, given the fact that you know, so many, so so many people live on large blocks in single dwelling, and you know that's just the way Australia is, and it's going to be very difficult to to change that. I mean, there are a few spots where you can build some medium density housing, and you know we all <clears throat> we all see it as we drive to work or <clears throat> drive around. So that you know, there obviously there are uh, apartment blocks going up. I just don't think it's enough. Um, so which is why in the SR so come down to the idea that really we need to open up land um, outside the cities using um, better transport infrastructure, better trains, uh, so that the commuting, the viable commuting distance is no longer 50 k's, but 100 or 150 k's uh, mm. from the city. And, uh, I mean, I suppose it would be good also if, if there were more jobs that weren't in the city and people didn't have to commute, um, which is a kind of a decentralisation argument. Um I note in the essay that there have been attempts over a hundred years to, you know, to create decentralisation in Australia, and none of it's ever worked. But that doesn't mean it can't ever work. Um, but it would require a lot of a lot of attention a lot of uh, effort on the part of governments to ensure that uh, to encourage companies to uh, to locate their operations uh, somewhere else. So look, um. Decentralisation, yes. Uh, I think the best thing would be that you can um, you can live on the other side of Geelong and get to the city in less than an hour by train, you know, and it's a nice train journey. You know, I mean, part of the part of the problem, well, it's not a problem, but I I, I um, wrote the solutions at the end of the essay after a short trip to Italy huh. where I spent some time riding around the trains in Italy, and they're magnificent. God. They were so they were were fast, efficient, nice uh, trains. You (laughs) know, I came back thinking, "Oh, that's the answer, crikey!" You know, uh, just need to get from Rome to Milan, and not very far, not very long. You know, so uh, we need to. I I thought, "Well, you know, we really need to be able to get from Bathurst to Sydney, in, you know, in in quick time, uh, so so that you can live there and still get to the city."
0: And particularly given, you know, our, our connectivity these days, I mean, I had a former staff member at Per Capita who used to commute in from Castlemaine to Melbourne, and we counted his commute time as part of his workday because he had Wi-Fi on the train and he got a lot done. Um, so that that yeah, well,
1: the companies are all whinging about that now; they're demanding that
0: yeah.
1: workers come back into the office. But you know. that
0: kind of attitude might need to change as well. But um, I was I was in London. Uh, in England when the both national parties, uh, both the Tories and the Labor Party, they had their national conferences and all of the debate was about them cancelling the leg of the superfast train from Birmingham to Manchester. Um, and at the same time I'm boodling around London on the underground thinking imagine if they'd done a cost-benefit analysis of the tube in the 1800s, it wouldn't be here now. You know,
1: <laughs> just well, exactly. That's <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, yeah, um, and we're having the same debate here in in Victoria about the suburban rail loop. You know, people are very against it because it wasn't tested properly, it wasn't developed properly. Um, and I was yeah, I was, but I'm not
1: I'm, look, I'm not I'm not a big urban planner, but I but I I wonder about the suburban rail loop and all. You know, it's going to be it's going to be billions and billions of dollars but just connecting the suburbs. I mean, we need to these trains need to radiate. It seems to me.
0: rather than
1: than Um, go around the the suburbs.
0: But we can't, we don't seem able to have a conversation about building what we need to build. It seems to me that governments either feel the need to do it in a clandestine way because otherwise it will be torn Mm -hmm. apart and that leads to bad outcomes too. Um, But, you know, it just really struck me that I was in the UK on the amazing underground. And uh, the the current talk was, well, we can't build a train anymore um, to Manchester than invented trains anyway. Um, I will stop dominating this and just take uh, one more question from the chat. Uh, So this is a, a good one to finish on, I think, from Charlie and refers back to Piketty again. He might, that Piketty might argue that big change doesn't happen gradually, that there need to be points of revolution. Um, do you have a moment of reckoning? Com- do you think we have a moment of reckoning coming on this issue, or do you think gradual improvement on housing is possible?
1: Um, look, to, to be honest, I, I hope there isn't a moment of reckoning because that would mean that um, that the house price to income ratio had doubled again. You know, it had just kept going, and in twenty years' time, you know, it had got to the point where there was you know a revolution or you know a moment of reckoning, and I think that would be bad. So it's far better if um, if the current polit- current crop of politicians head that off um, and set about gradual change. You know, um, through kind of some sort of slowdown and some sort of uh, the, th- the things I've been talking about. You know, persuading people that we- that it's a real issue that we need to do it, setting about um, having a target, a aim of policy. Um, and, you know, gradually getting there, maybe. uh, So, I mean, part of the problem is that um, whatever policy they come up with, it sort of has to fight against monetary policy and interest rates. And, you know, um, if interest rates started being cut again, then, you know, um, that would start to boost house prices again. I mean, we've we've had house prices go up this year, even though interest rates have not been cut, house prices have gone back above where they were before they (laughs) fell. Last mm. year, you know. I mean so look, I think um yeah We might think- get
0: you back we might get you back next year, Alan, and we'll have a, a much more general conversation about how monetary policy and the and the over reliance on it in recent years has 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 become quite problematic, given that our capitalist market's no longer behaving according to a lot, according to a lot of the assumptions that they use to inform those policies. So, that's a, a whole other conversation, but very relevant one. Um, thank you so much. Um, I do think that this essay is going to be a great contribution to that persuasive conversation that we all need to have um, with our fellow Australians, um, because a country that can't house its own people. Um, has made some pretty bad decisions and uh, has has arrived in a place that is pretty indefensible. I think um, at per capita in the Centre for Equitable Housing, we are advocating strongly uh, for the housing minister to use the National Housing and Homelessness Plan as a, a vehicle through which to set that bold national ambition again. To say this is a problem, we are taking it seriously, and we're going to we're going to approach it as a nation. Um, And I think until we see that happen, rather than these tinkering little bits and pieces here and there and a bit of blame shifting between different levels of government, um, that great correction that you say rightly that we need to bring house prices back in line with incomes is going to be hard to achieve. So everyone, uh, please do take advantage of the offer from our friends at Black Inc. Um, Thank you again, Alan, for your time and for writing this essay. It's, um, as I said, I get all the QEs, but this one was one of the best I've read for a while. Uh, not just because I agreed with everything in it, but it's really well written and well set out.
1: Thanks. Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. No worries.
0: Thanks everyone for joining us. Bye bye.